Morning, everybody. As I get situated, take my mask off, turn my microphone on. If you'll open your Bibles up to John chapter 15. Set my mask there. Can you hear me? Alright, so John chapter 15. Today we're going to be continuing to kind of work our way through the Gospel of John. We are 15 chapters in, soon to be... um, Done with John chapter 15? Uh, let, me, let me give you a little disclaimer. So my intention <clears throat> up until last night, up until this morning, was we were going to look at John chapter 15 verses 19 through 25. But this morning as I was kind of filtering through my notes, I began to realize, listen, we would be here for over an hour if we studied that big of a text. So we're going to Chop that back a little bit. We're going to, today we're going to look at John chapter 15 verses uh, 19 through 21. And then next week we'll try to knock out the rest of the chapter in also looking at verses 16 or chapter 16, 1 through 4. Or maybe we will split that up into three weeks depending on... um, the length of the text. So yeah, John chapter 15. So when you're looking at the Bible, when you're reading specific verses, some verses leave you very excited, right? Very happy. You walk away very joyful. I think last week's passage would be an example of that. So John chapter 15, verse 11, we read Jesus say, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So you read that and you think, all right, if I believe in Jesus, if I trust in Jesus, if I abide in him, following him, then he will give us joy. Following Jesus will be a a joyful endeavor. That is a happy verse, a a verse that we walk away happy when we read that. Joyful, maybe, would be the right word. But sometimes when you read the Bible, you read verses that kind of make your eyebrows scrunch or open or The hair on your arms stand up a little bit that leaves you this little lump in your throat and you're left kind of wrestling through the question of, okay, do I want to actually follow Jesus? This is a weighty verse. This is a weighty passage, a difficult passage to digest. Today's passage would be one of those passages, one of those passages that's difficult to digest. Uh, hard to to wrestle through. The the message is not as glamorous as we would hope for it to be. Today in John chapter 15, as Jesus is hours away from dying on the cross, he's spending time focusing on teaching his disciples. And in this time, hours away from his death on the cross, he begins to tell his disciples that the world is going to hate them, persecute them, extend to them hostility and hatred. The walk, the Christian walk, will be a difficult endeavor for them. And so where Jesus' disciples once thought that following Jesus, serving Jesus, would put put them in a place of elevation or superiority, or they would have this fame and status, Jesus is beginning to show them that the exact opposite is going to be true. Persecution is coming for Jesus' disciples. This passage is a difficult passage for us to read. 
But as we will see in these next several weeks is that this coming persecution is not an excuse for us to not trust in Jesus and not follow Jesus. It should not rob us of the joy that Jesus has just promised us. Um, As we saw last week that our external circumstances aren't what dictates our joy in Jesus. Our joy is found and is directly tied to our association with Jesus. And so our external circumstances, the persecution that we experience, should not diminish the joy that we have in Jesus. Rather, this coming persecution should actually be a reason for us to trust in Jesus all the more. Now, before we dive into this week's passage, let's look at the context of this week's passage, right? Let's quickly refresh our memory of what Jesus has been teaching his disciples up until this point. This passage uh, is a part of Jesus's farewell discourse. So this, in his last hours of his life before he dies on the cross, he's teaching his disciples, and this passage falls in that camp. So John 15 would be one fluid conversation, and because it's one fluid conversation, we can't isolate this passage from the rest of it. In fact, if we want to truly understand these verses, then we need to understand the verses beforehand. So if you're to flip back through the past several chapters, going I think all the way back to John chapter 12, you'll begin to notice that there's this pretty consistent theme throughout this farewell discourse of love. Um, Jesus has loved them and they are to love one another in this manner. So for example, after Jesus washes his disciples' feet, he tells them, hey, a servant isn't greater than their master, and so what I'm doing for you, you are to do for one another. In the same way that I'm serving you, you are to serve each other. Then several verses later, Jesus gives them this new commandment. And he says uh, that they are to love one another as he has loved them. So as Christ has loved his people, his disciples, his people and his disciples are to love one another. And then as we've seen for the past two weeks, Jesus has been continuing to teach his disciples Uh, what life will look like whenever he's gone. So as Jesus is about to die, he will rise again, and then he will ascend to heaven. And when he is gone, this is what their life is going to look like. He's going to give them the Holy Spirit. And he's been teaching those who believe in Jesus, whose faith resides in Jesus, they will abide in Jesus, remain in Jesus, so that they might produce fruit. So those who have received the unconditional love of Jesus will remain in Jesus, and will begin to produce fruit by, again, loving one another as Jesus has loved them. We saw that again in last week's passage. So there's been this consistent theme of love, and a specific type of love. This is a self-sacrificing love, love that reflects what Christ has done on our behalf. So the Christian life is one of love point blank, clear, and simple. If your faith resides in Jesus, then you are a recipient of unconditional love. If you are a recipient of this love, then you are an extender of this love. And there's such joy that is found and that comes from this, from knowing that you are loved unconditionally by God. There's joy in that, and there's joy in extending that love to others. But What we will see in this week's passage is that although a Christian's life is marked with self-sacrificing love, and although the Christian's hearts will be full of joy and peace that Jesus extends to them, 
those who abide in Jesus will undoubtedly be met with hostility by the world because the world does not know God. That's what we will see in our passage today. And I think John's really intentional in extending this to his readers, recording this for his readers, because I think he wants his readers to know that they have to count the cost, right? Following Jesus isn't going to be all rainbows and butterflies. And so if you withhold that information from a potential believer and pitch the sale to say, hey, this is going to be great all the time. Everybody's going to love you. You're going to get a pay raise. You're going to make millions of dollars. Everybody's going to love you if you follow Jesus. And then they begin to follow Jesus, and it's the exact opposite. Then you've been duped. But Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, it's not going to be that. And John's doing the same. So we should count the cost before we begin to follow Jesus, although we will have joy although we will have peace, although we have this eternal hope in Christ Jesus that cannot be taken away, sometimes you will suffer unjust persecution because of your union with Jesus. Let's dive in. John chapter 15, verses 19 or 18 through 25, or we'll stop at 21. 20. Final answer. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Let's stop there. So let's kind of work our way back to 18 and then kind of progress our way through this passage. Starting at verse 18, let's set a little groundwork, right? Maybe uh, obvious points, but I think points nonetheless that we need to make. Uh, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So the first thing we need to remind ourselves of is who Jesus is speaking to here, right? Who is he speaking to? Who is it that is going to be receiving this hatred from the world. Well, Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples, his followers, those who have been called by Jesus to follow after him. Jesus has just declared these disciples as being already clean, which means that they are in right standing with God because of their belief and trust in Jesus. So these are individuals who have been chosen by Jesus to produce fruit for Jesus. So this tells us that those who abide in Jesus should expect to receive hatred from the world because of their union with Jesus. If the world hates you, disciple, if the world hates you, follower, the one who's given his life to following after me, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. Those who abide in Jesus should expect to receive hatred from the world because of their union with Jesus. If you are daily walking with Jesus, some people will not like you because of this truth, which tells us that abiding in Jesus is not always easy. The second thing I want us to notice here is who it is that's doing this hating, right? Who is it that's hating Jesus' disciples? Who will Jesus' people receive hatred from? Well, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. All right, so we know that it's the world that's hating 
Jesus' disciples, but who is the world? Well, the Greek word used here for world is cosmos, and that's a pretty uh, fairly common word found in the, the book of John. In fact, it's, it's used 78 different times in this book. Uh, so John, this is a pretty consistent theme, right? If he uses it 78 different times, this is something that we should be familiar with in reading through it. And its most common use is to describe the part of creation that has deliberately rebelled against their creator. So the world would be everyone who has deliberately rebelled and sinned against their creator. Right? So this is specific here. Those who have rebelled and sinned against God. So, for example, when we read John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Good, yeah. So that's an amazing verse, not necessarily because of the, the size of the world. That's an amazing verse because of the wickedness of the world. The fact that God loved rebellious sinners enough that he sent his son to live the life they could not live and die the death that they should have died so that they won't receive perishing, perishing, so that they won't perish that which they rightfully deserve, but they might have eternal life through belief. And so the reality is, is that each and every human being on this planet falls into that category. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So John isn't describing the globe, this round ball that we live on. That's not the world he's referencing here. These are men and women who are alienated from God because of their sin. Men and women who are hostile enemies to God. Where God has said, do this, they have said no, and they have done something else. These are folks who have enmity with God, this deep-rooted hatred towards God that the Bible describes. And what I want us to understand is that that's where everyone <clears throat> on the planet either stands currently or stood past tense. Look at verse 19. We see that more clearly. In verse 19, Jesus is speaking to his disciples <clears throat> And he's distinguishing his disciples from the world. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So no one is guiltless when it comes to sinning and rebelling against God. We're all in that camp, not even us Christians, right? We all, as we reflect on our own hearts, as we reflect on our own lives, we have to throw our hands up and surrender and say, yeah, I'm guilty. I fall in that camp. I have rebelled against God. I have sinned against God. I have offended a righteous God. I am guilty. But what we see in verse 19 is there's a major difference between Jesus' disciples and the world, and that difference is the mercy of of God. All Christians were once, past tense, hostile enemies of God until God mercifully chose to extend grace to them through Jesus. The mercy of God is central to understanding this passage. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, why are they not of the world? 
They're not of the world because Jesus chose them out of the world. And that's why the world hates you. The mercy of God, the hatred that you will receive from the world is a sign of the mercy of God in your life. So we were hostile enemies of God until God mercifully chose us out of the world. The only reason why you are not still an enemy of God is because God was merciful. We have to understand that. That's foundational to the gospel. We see that clearly here in verse 19. Whenever you believe in and trust in Jesus, you are taken out of this family of the world and you're grafted into this new family. You've been given a new nature. You now belong to another. Where you were once children of wrath, as Paul in Ephesians 2 says, you are now children of God. Where you were once dead, you are now alive. Where you were once hopeless, you now have hope. So our disassociation with this sinful rebellion of the world is not a result of our own doing. It's not a result of our own will. It's a gift that we receive from this gracious God. It is only a result of God's mercy. But this disassociation from the world is the very reason why the world hates us, so Jesus says. So what Jesus does is he shines this light, thinking about our own lives, what he has done is he shined a light into our own hearts. He's clicked the flashlight and he shines deep into our hearts and he exposes the sins of our lives. And he says, you are guilty. And the Holy Spirit convicts us. And what we do in that moment is we don't push that away as the Christianity, the hope of Christianity is we throw our hands up and surrender and we say, yes, I am guilty. Lord, save me. And then we confess our sins and he extends to us forgiveness. We trust in that forgiveness and then we turn from our sins. And when we turn from our sins, that begins to expose the sins of those around us, which leads to those around us either joining with us in repentance or shaking their fist in hatred. And we'll see that progress a little more. So those who are now united to Jesus through faith will be hated by those who are not united to Jesus by, uh, through faith. And Jesus is saying, don't be surprised by this. It's coming. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And so Jesus is shifting his focus from the giving and receiving of love to now the giving of love and the receiving of hate in response to that love. But why? Why does the world hate those whose faith resides in Jesus? What is the cause of this? Why do those outside of the church hate those within the church? Why, when we're going around doing neighborhood interviews, trying to serve our community, do people respond frustrated and say, I'm good, I don't want what you're offering? Why, why is that the case? Well, I feel like the answer Jesus is giving here is actually quite simple. The world hates those who abide in Jesus because the world ultimately hates Jesus. And as we progress through this passage next week, we will ultimately see that it is because they hate God, right? They do not know God. 
And the fact that Jesus chose you out of the world causes the world to detest you and pursue you with hatred. So think about this for a moment. Being chosen out of the world insinuates now a lack of fellowship with the world, and it insinuates actions that are no longer consistent with the world, which means as one who is abiding in Jesus, if you are abiding in Jesus, your actions and your motives should look differently than the actions and motives of the world. So the actions and the motives of those who abide in Jesus should look different than the actions and motives of the world. So as one who is abiding in Jesus, which Jesus has just called us to do, your, your fruit, the things that you do, will begin to look different than the things that you once did. And so look back to verse 16, and Jesus explains this more clearly. In verse 16, Jesus reminds his disciples that he chose his disciples for the purpose of them bearing fruit. Which means that those who have been chosen out of the world to abide in Jesus will love like Jesus. Jesus has explained this. Your actions, now that you are connected to the vine, now that you are connected to Jesus, will begin to look different than what they once looked like. They will begin to look like Jesus' actions. The fruit of your life will reflect and resemble the vine that you are connected to. They will now be pleasing to God. You will be generous now where you were not once generous. You will be loving. You will be slow to anger. You will be patient. You will be kind, gentle, joyful, peaceful. The Holy Spirit will, will begin to produce this through your life as you surrender your life to Jesus. The actions of your life will not look like or will now look like Jesus's actions. You will become more like Jesus. But the difference doesn't simply stop at actions, right? That's not what following Jesus is merely about behavior modification. In fact, you can do the right thing with the wrong motives and still be doing the wrong thing. Jesus makes that clear um, throughout the Gospels, right? You see religious individuals in the Bible that were condemned because they fasted, they prayed, they gave, and they did all of that in a self-righteous, self-serving manner. They did good things in order to be recognized by others as good people. So they were doing good things with the wrong motives. And so the motives should look different than the motives of the world, right? So you can give flashing your tithe card. You can choose to write your check in front of everybody so everybody sees you give. You can fast and say, man, I'm just so hungry, like I'm tired. Why are you tired? Man, I've just been fasting for three days. The Lord's just so pleased with me. You can do good things with the wrong motives and it be wrong. So as one who is abiding in Jesus, your motives now begin to look different. You serve, you give, you pray, you fast, not in order to receive praise or recognition, but in order that God might receive praise and recognition through you. You're content with giving, but never receiving. You're content with giving and never being recognized for that. You find joy now in serving others and never being recognized for such service. Because you have everything that you need in Jesus, and because you have an eternal hope in Jesus, you're content and you find joy in decreasing so that Jesus might increase. 
You find genuine joy in placing others above yourself. Your motives begin to change. And as we see in verse 19, the actions of a Christian are in stark contradiction than their old actions and the actions of those around them. So abiding in Jesus will lead you to look like an alien to the world, just like Jesus did. Your co-workers and family members who are not believers should notice a difference in your life. My father and I went to a Florida State game last fall. Florida State lost. It was the Boise State game. Boise State wears this um, awful color blue. Another team wears blue. Um, Tyler knows what team that is. And so as you're walking around, you see all of this garnet and gold. You knew who was a Boise State fan because what color were the Boise State fans wearing? Blue, right? So in the same way, our actions as followers of Jesus should stick out in the world. We should begin to look different than the world, which means that the hatred that Jesus is speaking about here should be a direct result of our Christ-centered, self-sacrificing love that flows from our association with Jesus. The world will hate us because we have a new master, a new Lord, and a new purpose, a new calling. The more you look like Jesus, the more the world will hate you. And I think you see examples of this in middle school, elementary school, where just a small silly example, my wife's a school teacher. If she ever forgot that the class was assigned homework, and then you have that one kid who says, hey, Miss Perazine, what about the homework that you assigned us? What does everybody else in the room do? Oh, my gosh, you're the worst. We hate you. Why? Because they did what was right. And so when you're following Jesus, serving Jesus, those who are not are going to shake their fists and grow frustrated. Because we now abide in Jesus and the world does not, we will be hated by the world. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So several things packed into those verses. This first off is a reference back to chapter 13. And back in chapter 13, Jesus washed his disciples' feet. And he said, a servant is not greater than his master. So Jesus says these words in order to make clear to his disciples that the action that he's doing, they are to then do in return to one another. We've made that point pretty clear. The actions, their actions, the disciples' actions, uh, should reflect the humble, self-sacrificing actions of their master, the one who is worthy of their submission. And now, fast forward to John chapter 15, he's telling his disciples that they are going to, like their master, be persecuted and hated by the world. They should expect and anticipate a similar response from the world that Jesus experienced from the world. If the world persecuted Jesus, then the world will persecute us. To persecute, that's a, a kind of a big churchy word, so let's kind of seek to define that. To persecute means to extend to someone harassment or trouble or hostility or mistreatment on behalf of someone or something. So we will experience harassment, uh, trouble, hostility, mistreatment on behalf of our union with Jesus. So if Jesus experienced these things, you should too. And so have we seen examples, I asked myself as I was reading through this, have we seen examples in the Gospel of John of Jesus experiencing 
hostility, mistreatment, harassment because of who he is? And I think the, the undoubtable answer would be yes. So let's remind ourselves of a few of these examples. Because Jesus lovingly healed a man who was an invalid for 38 years on the Sabbath and claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, the religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 18, sought to stone him. So because of the loving action of helping a brother walk on the Sabbath, Jesus is now there seeking to kill him. Because he claimed to be the bread of life, Many of his disciples no longer followed him in John chapter 6, verse 66. Because Jesus performed signs and miracles and claimed to be the Christ, as we see in John chapter 7, verse 32, the Jews sought to arrest him. Because Jesus claimed to be the living water and invited the crowd to come and drink from him, to come and believe in him so that they might have life, there was a division among the crowd and many people wanted to arrest him. Because Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, the Pharisees sought to arrest him in John chapter 8. Because he claimed to be the God of Abraham, the Pharisees picked up stones to kill him in chapter 8, verse 59. Chapter 9, verse 34, because he healed a man born blind, they casted the man that he healed out of the temple. They sought to arrest Jesus. And because Jesus claimed to be the good shepherd who will take care of his sheep and lead his sheep, the crowd claimed that he was possessed by a demon. Because he claimed to be the one, because he claimed to be one with the Father, the Jews again picked up stones to kill Jesus in chapter 10, verse 31. Because Jesus healed Lazarus from the dead, the religious leaders put together this plan to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus. Not Lazarus. Uh, we saw that in chapter 11, verse 48. And because Jesus wasn't the Messiah that Judas wanted to follow and serve, Judas betrayed Jesus. And as we will soon see, Jesus will be crucified on the cross unjustly. So what this tells us is that nobody knows the pain of rejection better than your God does. All right? So as you face rejection, remember this. Nobody knows the pain of rejection better than God does. Jesus was continually met with hostility and rejection because of his love for his neighbor and because of his proclamation of truth. And he's now telling his disciples that they are going to experience the same. So whenever persecution comes, what we can't do is shake our fist at God and blame Him. But what we can do is fall on our face before God and say, God, help me to remain faithful in the midst of this in the same way that you remain faithful in the midst of it. At times, you will serve others in a Christ-honoring way and still be met with hostility and still be met with Rejection. At times you will proclaim the truth of the gospel in a compelling manner and still face rejection. But what I want us to understand is that rejection from the world does not mean you are rejected by God. Alright? So in fact, it might literally mean the opposite. And that's what Jesus is seeking to tell his disciples. True persecution is a sign that you are connected to Jesus. 
And if you're connected to Jesus, then that means that you have an eternal hope. Rejection from the world does not mean rejection from God. If the world hated your master, the one that you have given your life to serve, then the world is going to hate you too. This is something we must come to terms with as followers of Jesus. If you never receive any pushback from the world because of your faith in Jesus, then I think you have to ask the question. We have to ask the question. Are we truly in Jesus? Are we truly abiding in him? Union with Jesus will lead to an experience of some sort of opposition. Now, what we don't want to do is hear that, go onto social media or go wherever and just begin to be jerks, right? That's, that's not what we want to do here. Uh, we don't want to begin to, to just share offensive memes and just be a troll on social media. I think some people are trolls on the internet who constantly stir the pot in the name of Christianity. And they probably feel self-righteous when they read these verses and think, man, I'm facing all of this opposition because I'm just this great Christian. No, you're facing opposition because you're a jerk and you need to figure out how to be loving, right? So this opposition that we see here is a direct result of our love for our neighbor, right? This Christ-centered, self-sacrificing Love. We have to remember that abiding in Jesus leads to a Christ-like love that is humble, that is honest, that is costly, that is sacrificial, and that is eternally minded. As a response to us becoming more like Jesus, we will receive hatred from the world. Jesus then says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So this is a really interesting verse, right? And there's, there's kind of two different ways that you can go in interpreting this verse as I was reading some commentaries. And the implications of the two different routes you can go are vastly different. So let's kind of tease those two out really quick and, and kind of land the plane. So the first way to read this verse would be something to the effect of this. So if they persecuted me, which they obviously did, right? We've seen Jesus face persecution. Then they will persecute you. If they kept my word, which they obviously didn't, if they're persecuting him, then they will obey yours. So they obviously won't obey your words either, right? So that's option one. The reading of this would essentially conclude that if you follow Jesus, you're going to just face rejection in the same manner that Jesus has faced. And it is kind of a a hopeless reading of that text. The, The second option would be, Uh, to this effect. If they persecuted me, which they obviously did, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, which some did, then they will obey yours. So some will. I think the latter would be the right interpretation because I think we see examples of this all throughout the New Testament, specifically in the book of John. All throughout the New Testament, you see those in the world hearing the truth about Jesus and responding in belief. So some hear his words and they believe. Many will reject, but some will hear and some will believe and some will repent and trust if they will obey. All throughout the Gospel of John, you see this great divide amongst the crowds. While some pick up stones to kill Jesus, some believe in Jesus. 
So this is an important distinction because it tells us that although we will face persecution from the world, some will believe and trust and follow Jesus. Some will reject and some will believe. And even those who gave their lives to rejecting Jesus might one day believe in Jesus. Not all will respond to the message of Jesus will, uh, with rejection. Not all will respond to the message of Jesus with rejection. Some will believe. So I think the end of verse 20 gives us hope to continually walk with Jesus and proclaim the hope of the gospel. Not all will respond to the message of Jesus with rejection. Some will believe. You will be rejected. You will be ridiculed. You will be mocked. You will be called silly or sissy or any other name that you could call someone. You will be hated, sure. Jesus is making that clear. But not by everyone. Some will obey. The Apostle Paul, I think, is a clear example of this. When you read through the beginning of Acts, you see the church scattering to Judea and Samaria. They scattered because Paul was persecuting the church. He had given his life to oppose the church, to be an enemy of Jesus, zealous for this cause. But then what happens? Jesus reveals himself to Paul, and he changes and is now a servant of the church. You see this radical transformation in the life of a man who was once an enemy of God and who is now a son of God. So this should encourage us to share our faith boldly. This passage isn't all doom and gloom. There's still hope of gospel transformation even in the midst of hostility, rejection, and persecution. Although there will be rejection, there will also be acceptance and transformation. So as we close today, let me say this. As I was reflecting on my own life, I would be willing to bet that many of you are like me and you are a people pleaser. Right? The, the, the thought of people not liking you is crippling. And when somebody voices their dissatisfaction with you, you spiral into this just world of depression and sadness. Like you, you maybe this is a stretch for all of y'all because you're kind of like, oh yeah, sure, I'm looking at the, the facial expressions of some of you, Andrew. Um, <laughs> I can see your eyes, okay? Um, no, so when others say hurtful things to us, we we struggle with that. So this passage may be really difficult for some of us, right? The thought of the world hating us because of our association with Jesus. But here's what Jesus has been telling us. You are greatly and unconditionally loved by God. Nothing will change that. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loves you. And he loved you enough to send his son to die for you. Nothing can change that. But although you are greatly loved by God unconditionally, we're not going to be loved by everybody. You will face rejection. Some will hate us because of our union with Jesus. But that hatred that we will experience 
does not in any way diminish God's love for you. So we have to constantly think through the lens of the vertical, right? The horizontal is not an end in itself. We have to cling to the hope that we are in right relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us. You are loved by God. You have an eternal hope because of what Christ has done for you. Cling to that. The persecution, the hatred that you face in this life is light and it is momentary. It is fleeting. It is this small speck of dust on the long trail of eternity. So cling to the hope of the gospel. There is no reason to give your life to finding acceptance and love from the world when the world will not give it. You have been loved and accepted by God through Christ Jesus. So as Brandon comes up to to lead us in one last song, what we're going to do is I was reading over these lyrics in this last song. We're going to sing and we're going to proclaim our dependence upon the God who knows our pain and who is with us in the midst of this rejection. Let me pray and then we will worship the Lord. And then after we sing, we're going to spend a little more specific time praying for um, the kings. So, Father, we we love you. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. God, confessing our brokenness. God, confessing the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Hostile enemies of you. But you, being rich in mercy, have made us alive with the Messiah. God, you have chosen us out of the world so that we may bear fruit that is pleasing to you. So Holy Spirit, help us. Holy Spirit, help us when we face persecution, when we face ridicule, hatred from the world. Lord, help us to remain faithful. God, help us to cling to the hope of the gospel, the fact that we are loved unconditionally by you. God, we pray that that as we share that love, as we share that hope, God, that men and women in Mobile, Alabama will come to faith and believe in you. That they will taste and see that you are good. God, that they will find joy and peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding in you. And Holy Spirit, give us that joy, give us that peace even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of ridicule. God, I pray for the saints who across the world who are experiencing a persecution and a hatred that we do not know about and that we may never be able to fathom. Holy Spirit, give them joy, give them peace, God, as they gather today in secret. God, I pray for their safety. God, I pray that you are glorified through their lives. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.